And it is truly my honor and privilege to introduce my dear friend, Ali, to you today. I heard Ali speak at a retreat in San Diego about two years ago and was really attracted to his serenity and spirituality. So I'm one of those few people who doesn't mind the phone and he shared his number. We chatted for a couple of times and I asked him if he would study program with me. And despite his very, very busy uh, schedule, he said yes, and we have been doing that since then. My hope for you today is that Ali brings to your program as much as he did for me the first time I heard him speak, because Ali really works his program. Ali lives the program. Ali carries the message, and Ali is the message. So I give you my dear friend, Ali. Good afternoon, everyone. Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. Awesome. Thank you very much. So I'm Ali, a compulsive reader, and Nikki, thank you for uh, introducing me. I could sense my heart rate pound as you raised expectations. <laughs> but um, really, the expectation that we're all working towards is embedded in the song we just listened to, which is how to grow more deeper into this journey of love. And uh, this is the entire journey of recovery is to grow deeper in love. Of course, the hardest place for us to grow deeper in love is with ourselves. So we come to 12-step programs to learn how to love ourselves so that we can bridge across to loving others loving life. So if we look around, everyone in this room, I can notice 215 people, is here because we have a desire to be relieved of the mental obsession of the devastation of food, whether it's bulimia, anorexia. Radical overeating. So we all have the same desire and 213, 15 people all gather together with that single purpose. So I'm feeling a lot of love already. We're not working across purposes. We're not fighting one another. We're here to be freed from the pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization of compulsive overeating. But we're also here because 
of the last word of the second step, which is sanity. It's no small thing. Turns out that we want to stop eating so we can find our way back into grace. So sanity is a bigger territory than the binary of sane insane. Sanity means peace, means equanimity, means calm, means ease, means purpose, means a desire to be fulfilled and to be of value to other human beings. And it's not something that we are not. The word just preceding sanity is restored. Therefore, to be restored means to come back to an original. It is not something that we did not have. It may be occluded, hidden, buried under the brutal grinding, demeaning, destructive, constricting demands of the God of food. But we were always originally peace and love and soul and heart. So we come into this program to return home. It's really what this journey is, to return home. And home is beautiful. And all of us in this room have experienced it before. Let me stop that brief opening. I may forget where I was and may or may not return. But to share also with you that I've been in this program, August will be 36 years. I am a hundred pounder, high weight of 285 and have been abstinent since 4.30 p.m. August 26, 1984.
the big book talks about pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. So we know what that is. I also want to let you in on the fact that I am in the middle of a four-day meditation retreat, which began Thursday, which explains why I'm speaking so slowly. One of the things that happens when you're in meditation for the third day is you realize there is no place to get to. There's no reason to hurry. So we practice waiting, patience, tolerance, kindness. And we become familiar with the nature of our own minds. always in a hurry, always has an opinion. It loves to categorize good, bad, different. And then you realize there's freedom in not even doing that. So, I typically do talk slow. I typically do talk with pauses. Today might be even more. I find that the pauses are important for me. It's a way to receive some input that might be of value to me, we pause. Something beautiful about that phrase in the big book, the 11th step is all about pausing, sitting, waiting. So, What we do find, what I found, what I learned in this program is that at some point, and I don't know what the alchemy is, I don't know what the, I don't know what the mystery is, I just know that it is a mystery, that somehow each of us has to reach the depth of step one, that, that, and that reaching of that step one is not an intellectual moment. It's not a wish. There comes a point in which we know in our inner depth that we're defeated by 
food. And that in a battle with food, and we have proven this to ourselves over and over and over, we will always lose. But it is a mental and bodily allergy and we are doomed to repeating this cycle of despair until somewhere deep in our core we come to understand that no human power could relieve us of the mental obsession with food. I don't know why it takes 285 pounds for one person, 600 for another, 30 pounds over for another. I don't know. I just know that it's a requirement to admit complete defeat and the realization that no human power could relieve us of this obsession with food. So I have in this journey two sponsors. I had my first sponsor took me through the first year, Alex. I owe my life to Alex. He taught me about step one, step two, step three. He taught me how to pray. I did not know how to pray. I did not ever contemplate a higher power. I didn't need to. Um, I was not in enough pain to need to contemplate on a higher power. But with enough pain, um, Alex opened the door for me to walk into that space. And then for the past 35 years, uh, my sponsor has been Bob L, who has shaped my spiritual growth over these past 35 years. I think it's 97 or 98. Um, so I owe homage to both uh, for allowing me to even voice what it is I'm voicing today. And so uh, I had to develop a conception of a higher power that worked for me. And that was for me, not necessarily easy. I, I did not believe in higher power. I debated that God was for, or a higher power was for the weak and the poor and the uneducated. And of course today, I am well aware that the difference between not having any kind of peace is entirely dependent on how I bend my thinking, my feelings, my behaviors, my actions in the direction of a higher power. And of course, step two grows as I grow, right? 
it's not a static point. This power expands, grows, as my consciousness expands and grows. And uh, so it is a beautiful journey. Um, what uh, is important, I think, for me is that the 12 steps sits in the vortex of a much larger set of ideas. And the steps are tools towards this larger frame. If you remember, the steps don't appear at the beginning of the big book. They're embedded chapters into the big book, which means that there are principles that are offered to us well before and well after that shape this journey of recovery. And by the way, I don't know how to get anybody abstinent. Uh, I've sponsored a lot of people. I don't, I, I just don't know how to get anybody abstinent. It's, uh, it's a mystery. But what I can do is, as my sponsors did for me, and as you do for me, as meetings do for me, uh, as the tools do for me, as the concepts and the traditions do for me, is uh, help me grow along uh, spiritual lines. And so when, when we look at the doctor's opinion, which is the opening uh, frame of the big book, it talks about altruism. It says this is an altruistic movement. Altruism has to do with this idea of giving, of being of service, of expanding the circle of interest from me to we, of integration, right? Integration is key to spiritual growth. It is what is meant in tradition one, unity. We are individuals who, for lots of good reasons, lost our capacity to connect with other human beings, indeed with ourselves. So the journey of our return to sanity in step two of peace, of meaning, of purpose, includes this notion of connection with other human beings and learning how to do that. We have to relearn how to do that. So I, I go to meetings, not because it's simply a fellowship, but meetings are a way for me to practice the program of integration, unity, connection, 
love, kindness, tolerance, patience, humility, which is what you're giving me right now. You're giving me your attention. And attention is no minor spiritual practice. It requires self-forgetting. It requires getting out of the mental trap that is seeing, thinking, processing everything in terms of me. And I, and can I even one time in an hour meeting recognize I'm trapped once again in the mental obsession of me. And if I can turn my attention one more time to the person speaking, to the person hurting, listening, sending love and kindness, thoughts. I just had a moment of integration, of unity, of altruism, of being service, of getting out of myself. It's no minor word that in the very beginning of the first opening of the big book, the doctor's opinion, we are introduced to an altruistic movement. Of course, altruism is then deeply embedded in compassion. We are natural in examining the journey of compassion because we have suffered so much. We understand suffering and, and compassion is the recognition of not only our own suffering, but the suffering of others. You cannot experience step one without having suffered deeply pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization is embedded in every cell of our bodies. So we have enormous capacity for compassion. And compassion requires the living out of step one of tradition one, unity. We're in this together. Compassion includes love. So before we even work the first 12 steps or any of the steps, we're asked to identify something that we return to as a vision over and over and over again. The steps are there to teach us how to get there. But 
they're not the entirety of the program. They're tools to help us become people of deep compassion, care, connection, integration. And of course, integration and compassion is not just with the other person, which we often have to begin with at meetings because we don't know how to be of service outside of meetings, how to be compassionate, how to sit for an hour and listen. So we go to meetings to practice these skills that have been shattered by the disease. Not that it hasn't been theirs, but it's been covered under mud, disgust, shame, but we have it. But compassion also means connection between ourselves. So we are in a journey of self-compassion, self-forgiveness, the hardest place. So often we hear at meetings that if I treated myself the same way I treated other people that throw me in jail. Learning to love ourselves, accept ourselves. Radical acceptance is at the heart of this journey towards compassion, which begins with this two word phrase, altruistic movement. And then a little bit further, it goes on and introduces us to another language that we need a psychic change. So we're after a psychic change and the steps are a way of getting to that psychic change. And that psychic change, it says, is rooted in the following two words that is identified in the doctor's opinion, a moral psychology. And just, that's just the first three pages. We haven't even gotten to the steps. The steps are not an end in themselves. They, they are designed to grow into integration, compassion, love altruism, service, moral psychology. And what is a moral psychology which reappears in step four? A moral inventory. It's not an accident. A moral psychology is a vision of thinking, feeling, behaving, in ways that promote kindness, harmony, love, dignity, compassion, goodness. What I found for me is I didn't have a moral psychology. I had uh, a relativistic psychology rooted in what's good for me. That is a psychology. And there are people 
who can live their entire lives untethered from any moral principles and never have to come into a 12-step program because they never became alcoholic or compulsive, addicts or whatever. I was given the gift of being a compulsive overreader, which caused me to ask myself, what would a moral psychology look like? What would it look like? Which is what is meant by a moral inventory. The purpose of a moral inventory is not to prove to us our unique badness and inherent brokenness. And it is not a way to reintroduce disgust as a result of having identified defects of character, which we can also call our wounds. But it is to show us that there are patterns in our lives that have built a wall of separation between who we have always wanted to be and what we have become. We do a moral psychology so we can reconnect. We do a moral inventory so we can reconnect to this principle of a moral psychology, which is related to a psychic change. The reason that's important is many of you have heard and know that a plane leaving California from New York is off course 90, 95% of the time. What's really happening is that the plane is making thousands, tens of thousands of mid-course corrections, minute by minute, in order to find its way back into true north, which is New York. The lesson is we need a moral psychology. We need New York as a vision to work towards. Knowing that we're going to be off course every day. which is why the steps gave us steps three and 10. Step 10 is an ongoing radar system intended to do mid-course corrections day in, day out. Why? Because as human beings, We cannot be perfect and are not. It's messy being human. And anyone who thinks that they're spiritual, spend a week with your family. It's messy to be human. 
and what my sponsor taught me is that there are three relationships we're in at every given moment. Ourselves, others, and God, or a higher power. And to think that I can go an entire day without in some way needing to make some kind of a mid-course correction, 10 step. would be unimaginable. But we need that moral psychology. We need to get rid of the defects or to at least acknowledge, recognize the harm, the defects that keep getting in the way of us taking corrective action so that we can come back where? Step two. Step three is an interesting step. Conceptually, we take it once. God, God either is or isn't. We're in enough pain or not. We have come to terms of the fact that this is a disease that has no human cure. So we, we make a choice. God is or isn't. Five minutes. Thank you. But when we study the 12 and 12, in AA, the first word of the third step is practicing. So we practice step three. It's a practice. It's a daily, hourly practice of turning the conditions of our lives, the messiness of our lives, the inclinations of the mind, the distortions of the mind, the desires of the mind to this power that we are becoming acquainted with in step two. And that's what it is. It's an acquaintance. It's a relationship. There it goes again. The connection, integration. We're learning to connect beyond ourselves. So we're developing Two more minutes. a relationship. Thank you. We're developing a relationship with step two through the practice of step three. And... Um, in my now minute and 30 seconds, I wanted to make a statement about step seven and the steps in that. Nowhere in the steps does it say that we are trying to be positive. There is no after step seven, go out and be kind.
but it's implied in the big book, in the concepts, in the traditions, in the tools, that the reason we do step seven and nine is so that we can be kinder, gentler, more caring, more giving, uh, and be of service, right? Which, by the way, is another principle of compassion and altruism. Sponsorship is a form of service rooted in altruism and in connection. So it's a good journey, and I'm grateful to be on it with you. And uh, thank you for allowing me to share. Hi, Ali. It's Hillary. Hey, I'm a Hillary. Reader, and um, I really am speechless. I don't have a question, but I would like to say, after all this time I've been in program, I myself never figured out what you said, Ali that what I get to do in meetings is practice these principles of patience, tolerance, acceptance, love, kindness, listening, paying attention to another person without judgment. That's like radical. I am going to, and a lot of what you said to me, uh, I, a lot of what I heard from you, Ali, is very radical and beautiful and powerful and I needed to hear it, and I feel bad that I don't have a question about it, but it was very clear what you presented, and I, I'm thinking that there probably are other people in this room that also heard this for the first time, that I'm going to be passing along to sponsees who are complaining, and uh, I'm going to pay better attention to my thoughts. Thank you so much. Thank you, Hillary. Um, and you didn't ask a question, but it does raise a... Uh comment that uh, I don't know if my sponsor is uh, in here, but I give all, everything I say, I download from him and, and uh, his higher power. So, um, but um, what I would add is that this is a simple program. It, we don't need to make it complicated. We make it complicated. And we sometimes try to find lofty definitions of love. Feel love. Well, what if we define love as one of my mentor guides taught me, Marvin B. Is that love is the willingness to pay attention. That's it. Um, no great excavation of feelings. Just love is the willingness to pay attention. And so when we go to meetings, we practice paying attention. That's love. We're practicing love. Now, the other trick of the mind is I'm going to meetings and I'm going to pay attention 100% of the time. And of course, the mind being what it is, starts whipping. See? You didn't pay attention 100% of the time. You're a failure. What we're really practicing is what I call glimpse practices. Micro-hit practices. 
So we go to meetings to practice a micro hit and a glimpse of paying attention. That moment of paying attention in that moment with that person is an act of radical love. So what we are trying to do is piece together moments of glimpse practices of love over the course of days and weeks and months and years. But because we are perfectionists and we have all nothing attitude, we try to practice this notion of love as willingness to pay attention 24-7. You, you can't even pay attention to me 100% of the time. It's impossible. The mind doesn't know how to sustain that kind of concentration. For What you can do is pay attention. That's a moment of love. I drift into tomorrow, yesterday, what I'm going to have for dinner. This is bullshit. Oh, wait. I'm paying attention again. It's a moment of great love. And then it goes, oh, man, I don't want to be in this. What is, you know, right? Glimpse practices. That's what meetings are all about. Giving us glimpse practices of surrendering to others. Right? Unity over, over isolation and separation. A moment of clarity that says, you know, I don't have to judge this person They've been bitching for four months and now it's on five month bitch. I can actually say, I feel your pain. I wish you goodness. That's a moment of love, right? It's a moment, it's a glimpse practice that we can actually tell the mind, not only do you give orders to me, but you can also take orders. And you can take orders of a moral psychology, which is, Just love, tolerance, patience, kindness, right? It's a beautiful thing. So thank you for raising that. Hi, Ollie. My name is Sarah. Hi, guys. I'm a compulsive overeater. Man, Ollie, I heard you share on a phone meeting one time, and it just makes me so emotional how you resonate uh, so deeply on a spiritual level. And you actually started to change my program in a spiritual way. I've been in program for three years now and listening to you talk and getting an hour of your time. I still listen to it. I still replay what you taught me about working the steps and thank you. I can't, I can't express enough gratitude. How, how would you say you continue to work your program or how do you become so spiritual and I'll speak for myself, but perhaps others. Would you ever consider hosting a group where you can continue to share your practice? Because it's just, it's amazing. And I think so many people can benefit, including myself from it. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. It's, uh, I wanted to feel that in my body. Yeah. Judy, you're unmuted. I think we're, we're all doing that right now. That's the journey we're on. We're all doing that. And uh, we're showing up. We have a desire. You know, our higher power hears our desires, not our limitations. 
And uh, even if it's a 10% desire, our higher power or the universe hears the 10%, not the 90% that resists. Because the universe doesn't understand resistance. It understands desire, hope. Right? And it responds to the 10%. And you and I have it. Everyone in this room has it. And in the journey, we're given massive amounts of uh, stumbling rocks. We trudge the road to happy destiny. And those are there to soften us. They're not there as, as uh, obstacles in the traditional ways we think about obstacles. They're there to soften us, to prepare us, to ready us so that we can become more teachable. And that's the journey you and I are on. And it's a journey filled with mistakes. Connie, you're unmuted. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Ali, for this wonderful share. I know I'm going to listen to it a number of times. and hopefully it'll sink in. (laughs) One of the things I struggled with is what you said you struggled with initially, which was uh, believing in a higher power and and thinking, well, that's for other people. And I go back and forth. I mean, I've been in programs since 2010, but I still go back and forth in terms of higher power issues. And, you know, well, who's going to give me the guidance here? I mean, I, and is that my own guidance or is that higher power? And especially now, like with the coronavirus, I was like, what is going on here? So I'm curious how you made the transition from thinking it was for other people and then incorporating it into your spiritual practice, where you have a steady, consistent belief in a higher power and that that higher power can guide you. Because I'm not there yet, so I'd love to hear your insight. Thank you, Connie. Barbara, it looked like you were raising your hand. One minute left. Okay. So the secret, the secret to life is now in one minute. I think everyone in this room is struggling. There there is no moment of arrival with God. It's a constant. And the reason there is no moment of arrival and God keeps expanding and growing in its depth and width, is what happens is that there is a symbiotic relationship between us and life in which over time, and the big book has it in the appendix, which is spiritual experiences of the, of the, of the educational variety, which refers to spiritual awakening. What happens is through these experiences of the educational variety, our consciousness expands. When our consciousness expands, our understanding of a higher power expands. So there is no point at which we arrive, right? And and anyone who has arrived has not expanded the consciousness because a higher power is unbounded consciousness. So, um, and so it doesn't ask the question. My sponsor gave me that gift. It goes, I'll leave, open up a, a journal and write in the journal my book of questions to my higher power. 
or to this entity I'm trying to get introduced to. We invent a higher power. A person like me had to invent a higher power. I couldn't go to established frameworks. I had to invent the characteristics of a higher power. And then I had to experiment with this power, faith, and then later on becomes trust, and later on becomes confidence. But it's an inventive, creative process that happens between the questions we ask and the information that this mysterious force that we don't quite understand downloads into us. So you're in a beautiful spot. Keep asking the question. God, I'm Thank you. I want to know you. How do I do that? Show me. Teach me. Thank you so much, Ali. Thank you. And uh, that's all the time we have for this session. And I would like to thank Nikki and Ali again for sharing their experience, strength, and hope today. And all of the volunteers that made this session possible, especially all the tech people, since that's what I have difficulty with.